So my name is Doug Reeside. Um, as I think most of you know, we're in the middle of a uh, pastoral search, so several of us from the congregation are speaking. So you'll hear a, diff a different person next week if you uh, don't like hearing me. Um, so as of this past May, I've, uh, I've been a Christian for 30 years. On a Memorial Day weekend in 1993, I went forward at First Christian Church of Florissant in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri, and stated my belief that Jesus was the Christ the Son of the living God and my Lord and Savior. I was then baptized in a baptistry built into the church building in which I grew up. I was 14. My parents were Christians. My grandparents were Christians. Uh, Christianity has been built into my understanding of the universe. Now, before I uh, was baptized, I spent the previous, the earlier two years, reading the Bible for myself and books uh, by folks like Josh McDowell, which provide easy to read arguments um, for the uh, truth of Christianity that help address the doubts that some people who want to believe find troubling. Um, but I, I didn't make the decision, I didn't make the decision to become a Christian lightly, and I was old enough to have some idea of what I was doing, but I was young enough not to have had a lot of experience of the real challenges of faith. Now, 30 years later, I know I'm still somewhat uh, innocent and naive. I've lived a relatively fortunate life so far. It's impossible, though, to pass through three decades uh, without encountering the whips and scorns of time in various ways. Doubts form and expand in the cracks and the foundation of our faith. When the rains come down and floods come up, it's sometimes easy to wonder if all that we've built upon this foundation of faith will hold steady. And I think this is the situation that the psalmist has in today's passage. Psalm 77 isn't a psalm of rejoicing, it's not a psalm of repentance or even especially of reassurance. The psalmist has in the past uh, apparently tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and he's walked a while in the way of the Lord. He seems to know what it means to cast his anxieties on the Lord, but in this dark night, it's not happening. It's a very personal psalm. It's not exactly a prayer. Uh, the psalmist may feel that God is too distant for something like prayer. It's more like a journal entry or maybe a, con a conversation with a trusted confidant. And for this reason, I, I hope you'll all indulge me if, um, if today I take a similar approach and tell you about a couple of moments in my own life when I related to this psalmist. I'm not sure that I can promise that these stories will serve as a guide or as a path, but like spies of the promised land, I can at least tell you into my journey into the land of the giants and what I saw there. In 1999, I was 20 years old, six years into my Christian journey. Um, it's probably worth thinking uh, of the uh, college students in our church to get a picture of the person in my life that I'm describing when I talk about 20-year-old Doug. Like a lot of 20-year-olds, and not all, but like a lot, I was deeply insecure and also had started to taste the blend of loneliness that comes from being away from family and childhood friends, but not having yet figured out exactly who you are. There's a feeling that every choice and every chance in those very malleable moments might shape the rest of your life. And there's a very intense pressure to find a romantic partner. It was March, and I was on a spring break mission trip with my campus ministry. We had traveled by vans and cars to a church camp near San Antonio, Texas, uh, which we planned to kind of refurbish and clean up and fix up for the, the summer campers. Part of the week's work was renovating the boys' cabins uh, which we had planned to stay in, but on the first day we discovered that the rotting existing structures were filled with scorpions, 
And so the boys decided we're at, we uh, slept on the concrete floor of the cafeteria. <laughs> I had a huge, a huge crush on a female friend who did not reciprocate, and the friendship had suffered as a result. And two of my other friends had recently gotten engaged, and were spending, and spending time with them could feel a bit uh, alienating and awkward. And further, in uh, 1990s Midwestern evangelical land, ideas about masculinity were extremely traditional, and Christian events often ended up separating guys and girls for a lot of activities uh, where I didn't feel especially comfortable. Much of my week was spent avoiding games of dodgeball and prank wars. Um, days ended with long, uh, hours-long worship services singing songs which seemed to fill my fellow worshipers with aesthetic emotions that I simply did not feel. Impassioned sermons uh, made me feel very conscious of the guilt of my many sins, and I felt convinced that I was suffering justly that week from God's hand of discipline. I felt strongly that I was failing. I felt that if I, only I could say the right things to my crush, maybe she would like me, or maybe I needed to somehow obey more faithfully to receive God's blessings, or somehow lose myself in worship in a way that I didn't know how to do. I felt certain that my loneliness and alienation was my fault and I just needed to crack the code to make it all better. During one of the week, uh, work periods, I wandered away from the group in the hopes of finding some time to pray and journal. It started to rain, but I discovered a little shed with windows overlooking the camp lake. The door was unlocked and I found a little uh, bench inside this, the shed. I sat down, but I realized I didn't have a pen. I uh, looked to the right and there was a bucket of pencils and I pulled one out but it was unsharpened. Pulled out another one, still unsharpened, why God, why? Um, but then I noticed that one of the erasers uh, was uh, sort of used, and so I pulled it out and found the pencil had a perfect point. Feeling lamentable, I opened to Lamentations and read in chapter three, which uh, from the same chapter we opened today with, um, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? The verse seemed to speak right to my heart. There was nothing that I could say to my crush that would make her like me, I realized. There were some things that were out of my control. And then I, I looked up in the passage and, and saw the context of this verse. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then later, for no one is cast off from the Lord forever. Though he brings uh, grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. It was still a difficult week, but the reality of that encounter, the shed, the pencil, the passage, all felt like an encounter with God that made this whole faith thing seem like uh, it still had a place for me. Now, let the scene of your imagination shift forward 21 years. It's spring of 2020, and I'm more or less the person I am today. I'm laying in bed at around three in the morning, Things at work are going very badly due to a new boss, and it seems very possible I might be fired in the next uh, few months. Um, this has led to a severely uh, elevated heart rate that has forced me to take medical leave, um, and a global pandemic is raging. My dad is also in hospice, and things look bad. At that point, God felt very far away. Prayer was hard, as I lacked the ability to concentrate on anything for very long, and so I reached for my phone and, and read the Psalms. This Psalm 77, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord at night. I stretched out on tiring hands and would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. Yep, seems about right. 
If prayer is the answer, it didn't seem to be very offering very many at that moment. I lacked the energy to cast my anxiety on the Lord. My attempts to do so felt feeble, like the anxiety was fruitlessly rolling down my arm to cover me again. In fact, for every moment that God seems to be there, handing a newly sharpened pencil to journal about his goodness, there are times when it seems impossible to offer prayers, much less to believe that God will hear them. In scripture and so often in sermons, we're told to bring our troubles to God in prayer. And sometimes, maybe even often this brings comfort, there are definitely times when the silence that results hurts worse than the first wound. St. John of the Cross was a Spanish friar who wrote the famous poem, The Dark Night of the Soul, that uh, given a name to these difficult spiritual times. I read the poem several times and I find it really difficult to understand. I have a PhD in English and I don't get it, um, but I'll uh, summarize it as best I can. The poet imagines God as a lover um, and they, I think picturing themselves are female, are sneaking out of their house to meet uh, their lover in the middle of the night. The poet comes to the lover's house and spends the night in his bed. The speaker then writes, as his hair floated in the breeze from the turret that blew, he struck me on the neck with his gentle hand and all sensation left me. I continued in oblivion lost. My head was resting on my love, lost to all things and myself, and amid the lilies forgotten, threw all my cares away. In the poem, coming to God is seen as resulting in a deathly blow that destroys the self. C.S. Lewis describes this, um, at least to me more clearly, in a heart-wrenching book, The Grief Observed, which he published anonymously after his wife's death from cancer. He writes, meanwhile, where's God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel that his claims upon you are an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate. When all other help is in vain, what do you find? A door slammed in your face. A sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic that silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? I tried to put some of these thoughts to see uh, this afternoon and he reminded me that the same thing seems to have happened to Christ. Why hast thou forsaken me? I know, does that make it any easier to understand? When I was laying in bed in 2020, I felt many of the same things. The psalmist seems to be articulating this feeling as well. He comes to God and finds not comfort, not the God that I got of Psalm 127 who gives his beloved sleep, but a God who keeps his eyes from closing. I remembered that as I continued reading Psalm 77. I thought about my former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his compassion again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? There are connections there, of course, to Lamentations 3, and they stirred a memory of that day in the shed in my 20s. As if in answer to the psalmist questions in my own, I remembered my songs in the night uh, in Lamentations 
For no one is cast off from the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. There are some scholars uh, who believe, sort of ignoring the, the heading, which we don't really know where it comes from at the beginning of the psalm, that Lamentations and Psalm 77 were actually written at about the same time during the exile in Babylon. Regardless of whether that's the case, Lamentations in uh, this psalm are linked uh, literarily in several ways. Robert Alter, uh, in his translation, notes on verse 3, notes that my eye flows in the night is the same phrase that's used in Lamentations 3.49, my eyes will flow unceasingly. There's a lot of connections in the psalm, and these echoed in my mind as I recalled that day in the shed and found some comfort. God was in the shed, and he was in my bedroom that night, even if my eyes couldn't see him through the dark night. And I know many of you prayed for me during that time, and things at work have gotten a bit better. My dad has been in hospice care now for three years, and has still, he's still alive, and has outlived every estimate for the time that he had left, originally about six months. The pandemic was terrible, of course, but from an entirely selfish perspective, it more or less left me untouched. And yet, when the movie seems to have an ap a happy ending and you realize you've still got a good 45 minutes left, it's pretty uh, sure that the rest of the movie isn't just rolling the credits. Maybe some of you are passing through these moments right now. I know that at such times, faith may feel like self-delusion. C.S. Lewis acknowledges this in a presentation he gave to the Socratic Club, a club that he founded in Oxford that was sort of organized to uh, debate matters of, uh, of faith and science and rationality uh, with Christians and non-Christians. And in this uh, paper or talk he gave in 1955, he was responding to the objection that a belief, uh, holding firm or obstinacy in faith, hold, holding firm to your faith in God, is like the error of a scientist who refuses to give up his favorite hypothesis in spite of, an over, in spite of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. He argues that the believers in the Socratic club, which discuss philosophical matters, may think that faith is like that forgotten, that, uh, that hypothesis, that discounted hypothesis, because they maybe have more, most often encountered Christian discussions in the context of the apologetics, which would have happened in the Socratic club. That is, they encountered um, discussions of faith when they were trying to be convinced to have faith. In apologetics, the arguments for God's existence is, uh, is a question that must be considered and then decided one way or the other that C.S. Lewis writes, and we can have this slide, um, once it has been answered in the affirmative, you get a quite new situation. To believe that God, at least this God exists, is to believe that you as a person now stand in the presence of God as a person. You are no longer faced with an argument which demands your assent, but with a person who demands your confidence. C.S. Lewis offers what he calls a faint analogy of a group of people who are waiting for someone to, uh, who promised to show up for an important meeting. Lewis writes, it's one thing to ask whether so-and-so will join us tonight when, for example, there's no definite plans that have been made and everybody is just gathered informally in the pub waiting to go out uh, for the night. But it's another thing, C.S. Lewis says, uh, to wonder whether, whether that person will show up when his honor is pledged to come and some great matter depends on his coming. In the first case, in the pub, it would be mere, merely reasonable as the clock ticked on to expect him less and less. In the second, a continued expectation far into the night would be due our friend's character if we had found him reliable before. Which of us would not feel slightly ashamed if one moment after giving him up, he arrived with the full explanation of his delay? We should feel as if we ought to have known him better. 
For those of us who have met the living God, it is helpful to remember what we know of God's character when he seems to be absent or even worse, to be the cause of our injury. This is what the psalmist recounts in his own situation. He remembers his own songs in the night and then recalls God's interactions with the people of Israel. Starting in verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. The thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Um, your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. I think that the first time in, in that in 2020, or you know, the first, in, when I read it through in 2020, I think I skimmed through this a bit because it felt a bit like some of the, the, the psalmist was sort of falling back into the celebratory psalms without much um, reason. It sounded something like Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord is in the pieces, uh, breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. Like a lot of contemporary Christian music, Psalm 29 seems to have been a sanctified version of a pagan song. And when you're feeling distant from God, these can feel like those endless worship services in the Texas camp where the tears and raised hands each seem to be bearing witness that you are indeed cast off from the Lord forever. But Psalm 77 is a little more complex. God's power over nature, the power that caused the Red Sea to convulse, and the presence that caused a whirlwind seems terrifying to the psalmist. Most of you probably know the anonymous poem Footprints, which exists in several versions. The protagonist claims they had a dream, which was simultaneously somehow reviewing moments of their life and also depicting Jesus walking with them on a beach. They noticed that in the hardest times, there was only one set of footprints and objecting to this, uh, they asked Jesus where he was. Jesus responds, my precious child, it was then that I carried you. The poem has some scriptural ideas, but it is not in fact scripture, despite what lots of polls on the internet have suggested. In fact, uh, the psalmist describes an image uh, similar to the footprints poem, but with a very different conclusion. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, but your footprints were not seen. The author of Psalm 77 remembers God's mighty deeds and recalls even God's great act of deliverance, but remembers that they can seem terrifying. The escape from Egypt, the foundational story of the children of Israel, was achieved by heading into a hurricane led by a God who could not be seen and who did not leave footprints. God's ways are not our ways, and his ways can sometimes be, uh, seem, when we anthropomorphi anthropomorphize him too much, uh, unkind. God, uh, sorry, uh, Robert Alter writes in a note uh, to his translation, your footprints were not seen has the feel of a master criminal disappearing without a trace. His footprints sort of absconded. When God shows up, he doesn't always leave the kind of evidence we might demand. But then did he need to when the waters of the sea were held back in such a dramatic and supernatural way? And for those who are currently walking through one of those dark nights, especially in circumstances much more dire than those that I've discussed from my own life today, I can imagine some of you thinking he jests at scars that never felt a wound. The scrapes and bruises I described from my own life may feel frivolous, almost like making light of the pain that you're feeling. 
And even today, when I think of my college self, I realize that what felt like a catastrophe at the time seems pretty silly now when I re recollect it. Still, I also remember the pain that I felt at the time was at least as acute as the more ch serious challenges I faced later in life. The severity of the experience of pain is not always directly correlated with the seriousness of our circumstance. But I can see in retrospect how great God is in relation to the problems I face. The reality is that from an eternal perspective, all of our troubles are, as Paul says, light and momentary. And yet, in the midst of them, especially when the end cannot be seen because there are worse troubles lying between us and the end, they can feel like eternal torment. The child who cannot be comforted after scraping his knee does not have the perspective to know that the pain will soon pass and that the pain is mild on the human suffering uh, scale of suffering. And I think Psalm 77 depicts this tension well. The psalmist remembers God's deliverance at the Red Sea, but also remembers what the Israelites must have experienced at the time. From their perspective on the Canaan side of the Red Sea, God's interventions might seem obvious. And the anxiety you felt back in Egypt's a little silly, but when you're still on the Egypt side of the Red Sea looking for help and are instead met by terrifying whirlwinds, storms, and raging waters, and there's no sign of an anthropomorphic God that you're looking for, it can be easy to feel abandoned. And maybe the psalmist is trying to remind himself that the Israelites might have felt that God was adding injury, insult to injury, when they called out to him by, uh, and he sent, instead of help, terrifying forces of nature. But he reminds himself that if they looked for footprints, they would have missed the miracle. And the psalmist himself um, reminds himself that God also did provide a tangible, more human comfort in the form of human leaders. He concludes by remembering, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God may not leave footprints, but he does connect us through wise humans, uh, connect with us through wise humans that he puts in our lives, who sometimes have enough strength to care for the others like a shepherd. And I know that offering solutions to pain that will not be comforted can be felt as a kind of new injury. So that's not really what I'm offering today, nor is it what's offered by this psalm. Sometimes walking through the dark night of the soul requires us simply to wait on the Lord. Sleep will escape us, and our eyes will stay open and pour forth streams of water. We remember the works of God in the past not so much as a way to escape the pain of the moment, but as a way to cling with white knuckles to our belief in his character and goodness to maintain our faith in the person in whom we've trusted, to say with Job, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. He is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness to be, but as we wait in human scale, time, even a day may feel like a thousand years. Let us remind ourselves, uh, let us remind and encourage each other as we are able, that even in the darkest night when we cannot see him, God is loving, God is faithful, God is good.